Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together. We, uh, we thank you for the koinonia we can experience with one another and fellowship. And it's always good to be around like-minded people. So, Father, uh, we pray that you bless our time as we talk about um, spiritual warfare. We talk about current events. Guide us and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Where we're at uh, on spiritual warfare is uh, we're moving into a different section of Satan's work in relationship to unbelievers. We'll get to Satan's work in regards to believers, but let's deal with unbelievers uh, to kind of understand how Satan plays the game with them. Okay, so the first thing he does is obviously tries to prevent the unbeliever from believing the gospel, okay, or any truth for that matter that comes from the, tr- the, uh, the Bible. Um, so wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Satan's agents are there to keep unbelievers from believing it. And like I said, even in a, a prophecy conference, there are people there that are satanic agents that are there doing their own thing, disseminating their own information. Or, you know, I had some crazy lady come up to me and says, you're all wrong. Everything you said is wrong. I said, thank you very much and move on. Um, but they're just crazy, man. They're just nuts, and, but they're, 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 a lot of them are there to uh, be an agent of Satan, whether they know it or not. They're there to cause problems, cause divisions, discourage, all that stuff. So they do this with, uh, Satan's agents do this with unbelievers, and they do it in two ways. The first way, and, and this comes from the parable of Matthew 13, uh, the soils, and uh, many people misunderstand the parable of soils. Um, there's four, four types of soils, right? According to Calvinists, only one is a believer, and that's a misinterpretation. And actually, when you read it, three are believers and one doesn't believe. And it's the one that, that the seed falls on the path and the birds take it. That's a satanic agent. The birds is interpreted as a, as a satanic agent that takes the seed or the truth away. The other ones brought life. Right and and one falls on rocky, but it sprouts, and that's the cares of the world. Another uh, falls on uh, what was the other soil? Going going blank right now. Um, thorns. Well, it grows up, and there's thorns and thistles around it. Right, and chokes it out. So the first one has to do with shallow believers. The second one has to do with the cares of this world by the, the thorns and thistles growing around it, choking it out. Um, and so that's a worldly believer. And then the good soil, obviously, is the mature believer, the spiritual believer. So um, the fact that three of them sprouted life indicates that they're believers. So the Calvinist interpretation of that is completely incorrect. Okay, but that being stated, the first guy or the first... Uh, Soil is the path that, that the seed's thrown on, and then the, uh, the bird takes it away. Okay, that's, that's one of the methods that Satan does with people, okay? So that's a metaphor for what happens. A, a bird takes the seed. How does that really happen in practical life? What, what does that look like with Satan taking the seed of truth from an individual? How does he do that? Any guesses? Could twist it, maybe. So you get you. So someone's given the gospel out, or someone's given the truth out about whatever issue it is. The unbeliever is hearing the truth. The unbeliever is hearing the gospel, or whatever, right? 
and you state it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. You state it, right? It goes, they hear it, and then what happens at this point? The hopeful thing that will happen is they hear it and then bring it down into the belief, into the heart. You hear it and then it goes into the heart if the correct thing happens, okay? That with the heart is what, where you believe. That's your belief center. In your mind, this is where your thinking is going and everything else. So what you have to understand is Satan then will attack the person through the mind before it will go into belief. So it, it, it's an attack for the mind. It's a spiritual head game. So if you understand the mechanics of this, then so the word of God penetrates the hearer and Satan is going to stop it from turning into belief, if that makes sense. He's going to halt it at this point to arrest it so that it doesn't develop into belief. So if you can think about that in sense of that the Satan will put things in your head, not him personally, but demons or something else like that will prevent you from believing. Now, again, you can prevent yourself from believing, obviously, right? You can do that, but we're talking about spiritual warfare, okay? Um, so yes, let, let's, let's keep that out of the equation on this of self, of self unbelief. Okay. So what Satan will do then is capitalize on telling you a twist, uh, a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding somehow. And he then, uh, twists that enough. So where it's not believable, are you, it's too incredible or something like that to believe it's doesn't make sense or something like that. Then what else he can do is take already what they know about you and use it in your belief to thwart the belief, okay? So Satan already knows, or I should say demons know. They already know what your issues are, okay? They just do, and that's a fact of spiritual reality. They know what your issues are. In fact, They've been watching you. They know what you went through. They know what your trauma is. They know, you know, childhood memories. They know everything about you. They're familiar with you. And so they already know what kind of issues you will have. So they're going to, so whatever they implant in your head, the thoughts will typically be in conjunction with unresolved issues that are going on inside of your soul. So they'll take those unresolved issues and use it against you in your belief system. Give me an example of that. <clears throat> I don't know. Let's say when you were a kid, um, things got out of control um, and uh, you didn't like it. Whatever, you know, whatever happened in your family dynamics, it got out of control. And so uh, your big thing in, in, your, your, in your setup is you have to have control now. You have to be in control to feel good. And in order to be in control, um, you know, you have to control others. You have to control your environment. And, you know, the person becomes a control freak. And with that being said, then, so someone's coming at you with truth saying, here's, here's God. He's in control of your life. He planned and purposed your life. And he wants to save you. 
Um, but you're, you're hearing control, control, control. So Satan is manipulating that truth that God's in control and they're interpreting it in a wrong way, that the control is bad. Because in their minds, they lost control and people maybe tried to control them who were bad. And so when you're telling me that God's in control, they, that means I have to give up control of my life. I'm not going to do that. And number two, when people had control over me, they were bad to me. And so I don't trust anyone trying to control me. So Satan will work on that and say, that's right. You hear that? You don't want a God that controls you. You don't want a God that, that uh, control of your life and this and that and has all these plans. You have your own plans. You see how that works in the mind? So Satan will use those thoughts against the person and they will twist something that's good into something that's evil. So say, for instance, um, a person goes through childhood and they have no value. Um, They were taught they had no value by their parents, whatever. And so they end up trying to prove themselves through doing good things, that they are valuable and they're worthy of attention, worthy of love. And, and so they spend their times trying to perform, getting good grades in school, doing extracurricular activities. It's all performance-based. They go to college because they're performing for somebody. They want pats on the back. They're a good worker at work, but because they want pats on the back and they want to be recognized for value. And so anyway, someone comes and says, your performance is like filthy rags. In fact, to be more specific, your, your performance before God is like menstrual cloths, which is the truth, right? Your performance is nothing and it's gonna earn you anything in way of salvation. So now you're talking to somebody that's lived their whole life based on performance and that's how they get love, attention, and value. And now you're telling them you can't perform here. In fact, the only one that can perform you is Jesus. So what do you think it does to their pride? So Satan takes that and says, hey man, you've worked really hard to achieve where you're at, okay? And they're telling you that means nothing. You're a good guy. You've done well. Yeah, you've made your mistakes, but don't let them tell you uh, that your performance is not enough because this is how you've built your life. This is how you've proven yourself. This is how you got out of the gutter. This is how you made it. You're a self-made man. And so what Satan will use then in the performance aspect is pride. And so the person's pride becomes the, the stumbling block for them because Pride becomes the front to hide the insecurity. So the person feels insecure because, you know, they can never measure up to mom and dad. They can't perform for mom and dad. They get rejected by mom and dad or whatever it might be. And so their front is a performance individual. And that's how they, that's how they get love and recognition. But the performance is something to hide the real person they think they are. Okay. So when you tell them that and you attack their performance, you're attacking their front, which is where their pride is. Because if you attack their front, they have nothing left to hide from or hide with. And then they will be exposed with who they think they are. 
It's not true who they think they are, but they believe it. And so performance people have a hard time hearing that they can't perform for God. It's not good enough. And so that is what Satan can work on the individual uh, to prevent them from coming over and realizing you need humility because the first thing you have to understand with God is you're spiritually poor and you're bankrupt. It's hard to tell somebody that has low self-esteem because of rejection that you're bankrupt. Really hard. They can't, it's hard to get over it. Now they do, some of them, but a lot of them don't. Okay, so those are two examples. And, and, and I give those to you, so that's how he steals the seed. So the word comes in there and says, Jesus died for your sins and you can't perform and your good works are like minstrel rags. Um, they, they can't deal with that, okay? Or other things of, um, uh, you know, Satan knows that you get the impression of God from your parents, okay? That's your first impression of God. And if you have lousy parents, then your impression of God will be lousy too, unless that's corrected. And unfortunately, too many people don't get corrected on that. They view God and their relation with God in terms of the relationship with their father or their mother. That's, that's a lot of people. Not everybody, not everybody, but a lot do. And they can't disassociate that. So if their father was stern, they believe God is stern. If they believe God was, or sorry, if their father was lackadaisical or their mother was lackadaisical and really didn't watch out or protect them, they see God as unprotecting as well, that God really doesn't worry about them or is trying to help them in their life. So that is another thing. So again, truth will be told. Do you know how many people that tell me, I cannot stand that when they call God father, they cannot stand that. Why? because their, their whole impression of a father was messed up by a dysfunctional father. And I can tell, I can, I can tell you, so many people have told me that, that, that it's hard for them to grasp that calling God father. They really have a struggle over that because of the hangover from their own father, stuff like that. Um, other things that would, would uh, uh, mess people up is, is so Satan will, will take misperceptions of reality and use that against the person in their mind, okay? So let's talk about a misperception of reality. The first misperception of reality that is being taught all over our school systems and all through the colleges and universities and all in the psychiatric and psychological uh, areas is that people are inherently good and that all they need is a proper environment and then they can be good. Um, if people believe that, then their solutions to life will be far different than what you and I expect. Um, those people will think that all, it, all someone needs is more money and a better, and a better living standard to, uh, to act good, okay? This is where Marxism comes in. This is where, you know, false religions come in, obviously, on a political level of, of thinking that way. And that man doesn't need any checks or balances or anything like that in the government. 
And this is where trust in the government comes from too, if you think man is inherently good. Um, but what does the Bible say? The truth is, dude, you're going to hell, right? You're going to hell. And the condemnation is above your head and it hangs on you every day. And if you die, you will go straight to hell. Now, that's not a message that flies with a lot of people, right? Obviously not. It's the truth. Um, but if you're told everyone's good, then why do you need a savior? Because all you need to do is have a proper environment and then you can be good too, is the mentality, right? So now you're going to be telling people, dude, you're so desperately wicked you're going to hell. And there's the concept. They can't understand. Well, if God sends people to hell, how can a loving God do that? Because he's a God of justice. So in their minds, they don't have a morality system that includes justice. They don't. And if you're going to have a God who is holy and righteous, you have to have a justice system. Someone has to pay the piper at some point. Someone has to account for their sins. But in their system, no one really sinned. It was a mistake, and they were just misguided. And so then they'll say, well, you Christians don't make any sense, and this is how Satan works in their head. How could a loving God sentence someone to, for all eternity when they only lived like 70, 80 years? How is that fair? How is it fair? Okay. Why doesn't God just penalize you for 70, 80 years, however, how long you lived, and then you can get out of hell? Why is the existence in hell eternal? Now, think about Insar's law is concerned. Legally. You have to think legally in terms of justice. Why does the penalty have to be eternal? True, but can we just experience death for 70 years? Because we only live for 70 years. How can I be responsible for an eternal sin when I only live 70 years? Rory? Thank you. So Rory's the, correct. Because in the legal system of God, you not only sinned against man, you sinned against God. And because God is an eternal being, it requires an eternal punishment because you sinned against eternity or eternal being. Therefore, justice means you must serve an eternal penalty for offending and sinning against an eternal being. That's where the justice is. So people don't think straight. They're not understanding their sin. And the devil is going to keep them from thinking about offending an eternal God. But, well, you know, I've made a few mistakes, and yeah, I've done some things wrong. They, Satan will keep it at a human level instead of an eternal level. And, and when you realize, oh, my goodness, I've not just sinned against man. I've sinned against an eternal being that created me. Then you realize the offense is an eternal offense, and therefore it necessitates an eternal atonement. Okay, so what, how, do, how does an eternal atonement happen if a man goes on a cross and dies for your sins? How does an eternal atonement happen if, if, if a man goes and dies on a cross? 
How is that eternal? How does that pay an eternal penalty? Yeah, he's spotless. What makes J Jesus dare? He's a man. He's spotless. He's sinless. But the blood, I want you to, the blood is human blood, isn't it? Is it human blood? Are you sure? Okay, well, what does that imply if it's God's blood? Thank you. It's eternal. So it's a human blood, but it, the blood has eternal value. Therefore, it's capable of paying for eternal sins against God. That's why the hypostatic union of the Messiah, that he is the God-man, you have to have a representation of man, die for it, for it, but that man must be sinless, but, and that man must be, have eternal value, and that's hence why you have the God-man. It is human blood of the Messiah, pure blood, but that blood has eternal value. And this is where Satan will keep them from thinking about. He'll just say, well, you know, he'll keep it on the human level and not, and not take it any further than that. And that becomes what he puts in their people's heads. And that's how he snatches the truth away and snatches the gospel away. <clears throat> and the other thing, um, the other way that he, he does this is what you were taught religiously growing up, okay? And what you were taught religiously, it really gets stamped into your head, and it's hard to break from that. And a lot of people struggle with this. And they have a lot of leftovers in their Christianity from whatever religion they came from or background they came from. Now, you know, you can come from an atheist background and all that stuff, and we understand that, or agnostic or whatever. But a lot of people grew up in a cultic home. They grew up in a, a, a different religion home, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever it might be. Um, and therefore that becomes a major stumbling block for people when they hear the gospel. So let's say you grew up Hindu, okay? And so in Hinduism, there's what, 3,000, over 3,000 gods in Hinduism? And this is the problem the missionaries have on the ground in India. So they present the gospel to the Hindu, and the gospel says, yeah, I will accept Jesus, and it's real easy, and he does. But what's the problem? He's a polytheist. And because he's a polytheist, all he's doing is just adding one more God to his 3,000 or more or whatever. And so they're having a major problem in India because of polytheism. And they're so in their head, they're thinking, Paul, okay, another God, fine, whatever. Uh, we'll, add him, we'll add him too. But the stumbling block is Satan is keeping from them is no, no. There's one God. All these other gods are fake. They're spirit creatures, but they're fake. They're not the real God. And that's what becomes a stumbling block. Let's talk about um, another stumbling block of Roman Catholicism, for instance. Um, one of the stumbling blocks of Roman Catholicism is the hangover that if you leave the Roman Catholic Church, you are anathematized which meant that you are condemned to hell for leaving. Okay, a lot of people don't understand this, but this is why it makes Catholics reticent to leave the Catholic Church because if, if, if you defect, then you're eternally damned. 
and that weighs on them. Now, you know, you and I know that that's crazy. They, the Catholic Church can condemn whoever they want to condemn. It's not going to make a, a hill of beans. But if you're growing up in that environment, it becomes a major problem. And then with Catholicism, it's a heritage. Most people don't realize that people who grow up Catholic have a hard time disassociating themselves with their heritage and Catholicism. Uh, my ancestry, German Catholic, okay? Some of you, Lat Lat Latino uh, Catholic, right? Or some of you, maybe Irish Catholic, right? I mean, it's driven right into your identity of your nationality. And so when you, when you leave, you're leaving your nationality. It's very likened to Judaism that they leave when they, they feel when they accept Christ, they're leaving their nationality, which they're not. But that's why it's a stumbling block. So what Satan puts in your head, if you leave, your family's going to disown you. You're disowning your national heritage to do this. And, and so that becomes a stumbling block. Uh, if you take Judaism, for instance, if you accept Messiah, they're going to have a funeral for you. And so the first thing that goes on in that person's head about accepting Jesus is, no, I'll lose my family. They literally will have a funeral for me. And, and that becomes a barrier to belief. Um, and it's a big barrier, way big, because you lose everything at that point in time. So that's the way Satan comes in and snatches the seed. As he puts things in your head, and he uses things against you, your religion, your pains, your hurts, everything against you, and then he steals the truth away. So how does anybody have a chance to eventually to hear that truth? What, if he keeps snatching it away and keeps doing it, what is the issue? How does the person overcome the snatching away of the truth? If you were talking to a believer, how do you, how do you snatch away the truth? I mean, how do you prevent snatching away the truth? Pride. Yeah, the pride has to be taken down. How are you, how are you going to do that? Yeah, so, you, so then, so, so good point. You, you, should, you, you go into apologetics. That's what apologetics are for. Apologetics... Uh, and not just simply proving the resurrection or proving creation and debunking evolution, but apologetics has to do with you working with the individual to get past the stumbling block that's preventing them. And so the first thing you do in evangelism is you have to find where the stumbling block is. What's the issue? And then apologetically, you handle the issue. Now, some of your issues, some people's issues might be scientific. I don't know. But most of the people's issues, I can already tell you, the apologetic you're going to have to deal with is relationships. You're going to have to know to, how to speak to people about their relationships because of how fouled up and dysfunctional their relationships are and have been. That's where you spend the majority of your time. Now, you'll f get a few people, you know, professors or whatever, that you're going to have to prove that evolution's a false thing, obviously, and, and aliens didn't create us. And, but the most of the time, the, the stumbling block will be a relationship. It'll be their mom. It'll be their dad. It'll be their heritage. It'll be their family. And that's what's preventing them from coming over. That's why Jesus spoke about family issues more than anything else as a stumbling block. That's why he said, you must love me more than your family, right? You must love me and hate your father and mother. And hate your means, put them in second place. 
And, and remember, he gave uh, even a discipleship passages to believers. And remember, some of those guys made excuses, and they say, no, I got to bury my father and, and give me a year. And it was the idea of waiting for his bones to drive so they could put him in an ossuary and put him in a, in a, a smaller crevice in the tomb. Uh, so that's how long they would give the body to decompose um, in limestone. Um, and then the other one says, no, um, you know, uh, what else? What was the other thing? I got to go home and say goodbye to everybody or something like that. I got to go home and say goodbye to my family. He goes, no, 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 no. Don't go say bye. You follow me. And when you see those passages, that is the major stumbling block. It's their family. So Satan uses their family against them every time, every time. Yeah, Sal. Yeah, second place. Okay, so it's a Jewish, Jewish idiom that Jesus is using, first century language, and you must love me and hate your father and mother. Or you can go back even f- further than the first century, and uh, um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Remember that passage? Okay, Paul uses that passage in Romans, but it comes from the Old Testament. And what does that mean? Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it, or love Jesus and hate your father and mother. It's a Jewish idiom, which means preference. I will prefer this one over that one because in in Jacob's case, I'm going to use Jacob and not use this line. It's not a it's not an issue of someone's more valuable to me or someone's more precious to me or someone's more lovely to me. It's a matter of, I'm going to choose to use this route instead of that route. When Jesus uses the idiom in his uh, passage, it is about preference, but it's a preference about who do you choose over someone. You must choose Jesus over your family is the idea. And that's where you get the love and hate distinction is I'm preferring one over the other. It doesn't mean I ignore the second one. It doesn't mean I don't bless the second one because even Esau was blessed. Esau had amazing uh, uh, ancestors, right? That, that, that came from his line. So it wasn't God's not paying attention to Esau. It's I'm going to choose Jacob for the Messiah to come through and I'm using them for for a preference. I'm preferring this line. Uh, and say so same thing with Jesus. You prefer Jesus over anything else in the world. But I can tell you this. There's a lot of Christians that don't put Jesus first. They put their family, they put their kids, they put their, their spouse over Jesus. They don't think they're doing it, but it's so obvious from the outside what they're doing that it's easy to spot. And how would you spot that? How would you spot if someone is putting their family over Jesus, what would you see? Any ideas? The decisions are based on what? Yeah, usually the decisions is that the priority is the family first and Jesus second. That's Mormonism. Okay? That's Mormonism. The family's not first. Jesus is first. And the kids 
need to have that primary relationship with Jesus too, okay? The primary relationship that the kids need to have is Jesus and the parents are second to Jesus. Now that might throw people off because parents think, well, my kid needs me. That's true, and they do in a secondary way compared to Jesus. But more than anything, they need Jesus. And you are a far second from Jesus. A very far second. Okay? But unfortunately, parents don't think like that. They don't think like that. They say, well, I need to spend time with my kids. No, your kids need to spend time with Jesus. And your kids need to spend time with you in a secondary way. But what happens? We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And people take their kids away from Jesus for family time. Now, there's a place for family time. I'm not saying not have family time. But then when, when you start watching, the couple will have an inordinate amount of family time that starts invading the times when they could be in church, in Sunday school, Awanas, you know, youth group, whatever, because they're doing their thing. Okay, great. So let me ask you this. If the parents can do all the job in the, in the, in the house and they don't need a church, then why in the world did God gift the church with people who have a skill set that goes beyond the parents. But see, this is the mentality that's going on in Christian parenting, that the parents can do all of it at the home. Now, I get it. You're going to do a lot of it because you don't want to do your public schools. But when the parents start not coming to church and isolating with their family, not going to youth group and all that, that stuff, and I get there's bad churches and stuff, but when you go to a healthy church, you're going there because there's a gifting there that the average person doesn't have that goes beyond the parent or home. You have to come under the authority of the church, and too many Christian parents don't do that. It becomes idolatry. It's absolutely. So what, what, where's the idol at? What's the idol? The family becomes an idol. It's Mormonism, Okay. Mormonism. Mormonism is the family, the cult of the family. That's the problem. So Jesus says you must build on, or Paul said, you must build on the foundation of Christ. Any other foundation you build on will be wood, hay, and stubble. So when you look at the Mormons, what foundation are they building on? Family. They're building on family. It's the wrong foundation. It's not Christ. Seventh-day Adventists. What foundation are they building on? Sabbath, really, Mosaic law. Wrong foundation. Wood, hay, and stubble. Jehovah Witnesses. What foundation are they building on? Well, the watchtower, true, but what's specific about the Jehovah Witnesses? They are an eschatological cult. They have built their theology on wrong eschatology. Hence, it's not Jesus. It's wrong eschatology. It's a cultic eschatology. And therefore, they're not building on Jesus, and that's why they're a cult. So in your own life, 
you must too build on a personal level on the foundation of Christ, because if you build on anything else, you're going to find yourself being unrewarded. Let's get uh, a question over there. Back what you were saying earlier, Jesus, even in his youth, left his family and disappeared. And yeah. he said, I'm about my father's business. And he. Yeah, he put them in their place. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He set the example in his youth what we should be accept. Absolutely, man. And and so you you nailed it, Jeff. That's a great example, man. Okay, right back here somewhere. Where are we at? We, we had an online question. Okay, go ahead. They're asking how to say input thoughts into people's heads. I, I don't know the mechanics of it, but I do know he doesn't. He puts thoughts into people's heads, and this is where we get the ter- idea of influence. Now, again, the question would be like, okay, so uh, an example of influence. Peter was thinking that he's going to stop Messiah from going to the cross. Remember that? Heavens forbid you go and die in Jerusalem. We're not allowing that. And and we know that this wasn't just simply Peter's own thoughts. How do we know that? Because Jesus addresses the originator of the thought in Peter's head. And what does he say? Satan, get behind me. He didn't say, Peter, get behind me. He addressed the one that was putting the thoughts in Peter's head directly. Satan is is influencing Peter at that moment. And so that's how we know he can communicate through our minds. The mechanics of it, I don't know. The Bible never tells me that. But I do know this. Have you ever had an experience where an ungodly thought ran through your head? You know, like, where did that come from? That's it. It's not coming from you. It's something you wouldn't think about, but it's put into your head. And those kinds of thoughts happen all the time. So I can't explain the spiritual mechanics of it. I will say this, your thoughts are protected. They can't read your thoughts, but they can insert things into your head, just like a human can. And how would they do that? Through speech. But in in the spiritual realm, it, it appears to be a mind-to-mind communication, okay? It's a mind-to-mind communication that happens, and that's the best I can do to explain that. But it does happen. It does happen. So, where am I at? Any more questions so far? Okay, good, good, good. Okay, let's move to the next one. That's the first way is to snatch away the seed. The second way is by blinding the mind of the person so that when the gospel is presented, they cannot comprehend exactly what the issues are. Okay, so how does, how does Satan blind the minds of people? How would he do something like this? Yeah? Yeah? Incites pride and ego. Pride will blind you. Ego will blind you. What? Emotions will blind you. Good. Emotions will blind you. Being driven by emotions. Absolutely. False teachings. False thoughts. Yeah, emotions are good. Traditions. That's good. You can have traditions that blind you to it. 
Yeah, that can blind you to it. Motivation, power, money, prestige, all the three elements that the Pharisees had. What's going on in the world blinds you to it. Okay, so let's narrow that down then. Let's, let's distill that down. Because those are the symptoms. But let's distill it down to the primary issue then so we can get a, a grasp on what is it. So you got emotions, you got traditions, you got false religions, all these things that go as a symptom of that somebody has been blinded. They contribute to it. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, absolutely will blind you, the heart. So when you start distilling things down, keep going down. It's a heart issue. It's a belief issue. And here's when you get to the root of the problem. Here's where it goes. So all those things you said are correct, but they are symptoms that come down into the very root. The root of why people are blinded is because they suppress truth on purpose. Now, why would they do that? Why would anybody not want to live by truth? They love it, yes. They love their sin. They want to be accountable. Ah, so now you're getting onto something. The reason people blind themselves has to do with them not wanting to accept the truth and instead create another narrative. They want to be a God unto themselves, calling the shots back to Adam and Eve. Okay, They don't want to be told that reality is this. They want to be in a world where they create reality by what they say. Now, you see that, that copycat's God. God spoke, and he spoke reality into existence, right? Everything he spoke came into being and is reality. What Satan tries to do with people, but they do it to themselves in a lot of ways. They want to become like God. And they don't accept this reality. I want to create my own reality, and what I say is true in my world. And it's the total opposite of what God says. When the person does that, suppresses the reality that God has said, then they go blind. They're not blind, per se, to their own world. They're blind to truth at that point in time because they want this reality to be true so bad that the sky is purple and they want it so true, it blinds them to the real sky. In, a, in other words, yeah, it's, it's about feelings. And, and so we're seeing the demonstration of it right now in society, aren't we? People just saying, I want to be a guy or I want to be a girl and I want to be this and I want to be that and I think this is legitimate. It's a suppression because I want to live in a different alternative reality and I will be my own God in that reality. And the penalty you pay for that is blindness. You go blind. The longer you hold on to this reality, this false reality that you have created the longer it will keep you away from the truth and the longer it will blind you and you won't see the light. You will not see the light. 
What, it, what, was, what is the verdict on man? Jesus said it. Light has come into the world. What does light mean? Truth, revelation from God. Jesus is the light of the world, which again, it's a metaphor saying Jesus is the memra or the logos of God. He's the word of God. And when that word of God is spoken, it creates reality. Light or truth or reality has come into the world. Not only in, in revelation from scripture, but Jesus himself is that revelation of reality. But he says, there's a problem. Men love darkness, right? They love darkness. And what is the darkness? Non-revelatory information. Darkness represents anything that man can conceive without God or what Satan or demons can conceive. That kind of knowledge is darkness, I mean, that's what we're experiencing in society. The reason why it's so dark out there, this is how man thinks. Man thinks that you, uh, if you're born a guy, you can become a girl by hormone blockers. That's what man thinks. That's darkness. That's stupidity. That's unreality. That's crazy, right? Man thinks that a global government is good. That's darkness. If he had the revelation from God saying no nations are important, then he would know the light, but he doesn't want to know the light. So when you say, no, this is, God says this is good, they're saying, no, it's not, it's bad because I'm in darkness. But, but because men love darkness because their deeds are evil. So again, back to the garden. God tells me, right and wrong, but I don't like that. So that's why I'm creating my own reality because I want to determine that my lifestyle is okay with God. And I'm going to, whatever it is, I'm a murderer, a thief, a liar, whatever it might be, whatever lifestyle I choose, I want that to be okay. Whether it's I'm an Antifa guy or I'm a BLM or whatever it might be, a cult, whatever. So I like the fact that when I'm in my darkness, in my darkness, my deeds of evil are reinterpreted to be good. And I want that to be true. I don't want to be told my deeds are evil. I want to be told my deeds are good. I want that get confirmed. And so I create this darkness to hide in from the light. So the, the light wants to penetrate the darkness, but people hide in the light because they don't want these deeds, and as he says it, for fear that their deeds will be exposed by the light. So they do their activities in this darkness so that the light doesn't shine upon it and says, you're wrong. And the light comes and he comes on the Shekinah and everything's there. That's why it says in the New Jerusalem, there's no shadow in the New Jerusalem. There's no sun or, or moon, but there's no shadow of darkness because the light of the Shekinah permeates every part and every nook and cranny of the New Jerusalem to where there's metaphorically no darkness. There's nothing to hide anymore. And so at the end of the day, 
um, blinding happens on purpose by the individual. They choose to stay in that instead of reaching out and saying, what is the truth? What is it? Okay, so then let's say someone's in darkness. How would they reach out for the truth? What would be the first thing? Okay, general revelation then. General revelation would speak to them. And what does general revelation say? Number one, there's a creator. You should look around. There's someone created this. It's intelligent design all over the place. Number two, the conscience on my heart, that my conscience bears witness that the law of God is already on my heart. It testifies that I'm guilty of it. That's number two. Number three, history, God's history. And the fact that God is orchestrating history and the primary example how God proves history, that he's in control of history, is the Jews. The Jewish people are the example of God controlling history. That's why everybody wants to wipe them out because they are a constant reminder that man's history is under the thumb of God. And, and fourth is providence. And everybody can experience and see providence in their life. What does providence mean? That things don't happen by accident. Things line up in their life on purpose and they have to admit it. There's not consequ- uh, sorry, coincidences, there's providence. And with those four parts of general revelation that come from the Bible, if they will respond to those four, then special revelation will be given to them and the light will get to them. But it starts with general revelation. They've got to accept general revelation. And if they don't, that's where it'll all stop before special revelation is given. So um, that's how you get out of it. But you have to leave the darkness. You have, to, you have to be dragged into the light and exposed in that light. And that's one of the main things people don't want. They don't want to be exposed. So they would re- they'll remain blind. Now, here's the, the consequence of this. The consequences of this is a, a systematic uh, consequence that follows right in line. The consequence is this, is you don't get to stay there. You'll go blinder and blinder. I know that sounds weird, but you, it, it just goes darker and darker and darker for the individual. And they get worse and they get worse and they get worse the longer they stay in this state. till they finally reach a point, and only God would know this, they're at the point of no return. And only God knows that. We don't know that, but God knows when someone has reached the point of no return. So I'll give you an example. Well, who are people that reach the point of no return? Well, first of all, the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're not coming back, right? They're thrown immediately into the lake of fire, aren't they? There's no judgment for them. They're just thrown in the lake of fire. They reach the point of no return. Chad. The distinction, uh, you got the mic right there? The distinction. So is that the distinction where the Bible says you can have a depraved mind versus blinding of the mind? The depravity is when you keep going down that hole more and more? Yeah, and I, I would imagine, you know, because <clears throat> there's, I guess you would say, varying degrees of blindness, okay? So, um, like, for instance, um, you might speak to conservative people, right, that are not believers, and they understand the same things you do, even though they're not believers, that's, that's 
an example of somebody that's not in total darkness. They total they get it, you know, at, at least a political level and a moral level. They get it right. But let's just say you take someone else like a Nancy Pelosi. Wow. Wow. How dark is that darkness? You get what I'm saying? Versus some guy that's a conservative, he's not a believer, but man, he really agrees with a lot of things we would say as Christians, right? That's, that's a degree of blindness. He's blind to the gospel, but at least he knows the biblical principles, at least, um, versus like Nancy Pelosi, who just got excommunicated out of the Catholic Church, apparently, in San Francisco. And then she makes a smart aleck remark, which doesn't even make sense. But anyway, um, so, but the problem is, if you get enough people that are going down this path as a society, as a culture, the culture will become dark, okay? And like we're going to talk about the second hour about the shooting, that is an example of how morally bankrupt and dark our society is, that that would even happen. Okay, and, and what we're seeing is this darkness and blindness is getting so bad, the blindness is actually making people into robots, zombies, I'll call them. They just do what they're told to do, and they believe everything that comes out of people's mouths. You know why? Because they don't believe anything that comes out of God's mouth. And if you're not going to believe anything that comes out of God's mouth, you're stuck with human mouths, and you're going to believe everything that comes out of those human mouths. And they're going to believe the government is God or whoever is God, Fauci's God or whoever, and you just trade one God to another. And you just do what they're told to do. What you're really seeing in America is a new religion that's, make, that's forming. We call it wokeism, but it is a new religion. This is what's the vacuum is being filled by wokeism. And this religion tells its adherents what to do. There's no salvation in this. There's no forgiveness in this system. Um, you make sacrifices uh, in the system. It's a complete religious system, but it's a very dark and satanic religion, no doubt about that. And it's causing people to be blind. Um, how so? When bureaucrats cannot see What's going on when a kid shoots up at school and their only thing that they say is to attack the instrument, you're blind. Because that means you don't understand human, human sinfulness. You don't understand how a person can go totally depraved and completely blinded like this guy did and get demonically influenced to do something like that. When you don't see a spiritual necessity here in the story, you're just going to go and blame a gun. And, and, and that's, that's because they're blind. When you're blind, you can't spot evil. Because you're in evil. When you're in it and a part of it, you can't see it. You have to be in the light in order to see evil and spot it for what it is and call it out. They can't see it. They're totally like this. What are you talking about? It's guns. It's guns. Yeah, why don't you end up like Britain and say, well, we don't have guns, but it's knives. It's knives. So they outlawed steak knives in Britain. 
Stupid. Just stupid. Because that's what happens when you have, you're have you immoral and you have no anchors. You make stupid laws. Well, we're going to outlaw. How about you outlawing cars? People use cars to kill people. Oh, how I have a better one for Biden. If you're going to blame the instrument, why don't you blame the drugs that are killing more people? You notice that he wouldn't do that? Randy. So in Second Thessalonians, it talks about giving getting strong delusion that they believe the lie. And I know that's referring to the Antichrist and all that, yeah. but... In terms of uh, birth pains, is there, like, can we kind of yeah. that that's part well, of Well, what's happening is, and where I would go with that, the delusion uh, in that passage is them being given over after so much truth has been given to them. So, okay, where would a, a similar passage be like that that would be in a more general sense? It's Romans 1. It's Romans 1. Because it's the, it, when you read Romans 1, it says those who suppress the truth that they've heard the truth, right? They know what the truth is. And they say, no, I'm suppressing it would be the same thing that they're doing before the Antichrist, you know, puts the mark. So it's, it's equivalent in that sense. So what you're seeing is Romans 1 can speak to the individual, but it also can apply to a society. So you can see it in an individual. When an individual gets so depraved, all you have to do is read the rest of Romans and he will enumerate all the sins that that person can possibly get into and approve of others that do them, but then apply it culturally to a society, Randy. And you, you have that list of sins being a cultural issue going on. And I think Romans 1 is where America's at. And that's why I believe if you read it, it's like three different times in Romans, he gives them over, he gives them over, he gives them over. And I think that's what's happened in America. That's why you have a shooting like this. He's given us over now to a depraved mind. Not you and me, but the culture at large is depraved. They can't even figure out the wrong thing. So I I was listening to Fox News and and I, I, I want to save a little bit for next time, this next hour. But, um, you had people talking heads coming on. Well, what we can, we, what can we do? What can we do? Well, we just got to have, you know, and I get it on a, on a, a security level. You got to have more security for the kids and you got to have, um, you know, all these other things. And they were talking about trap boxes and all kinds of things in the school. Okay. 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 But that is coming with a solution. That's non-spiritual. We just need more guards. Yeah. I get that on a, a level of, of, uh, practicality, you do need more guards in this crazy world, no doubt about that. But let's take a step back. In the 1960s, 50s, 40s, whatever, people actually went to school with guns and they would go hunting afterwards. So their their cars and their 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 trucks had gun racks with guns in them with loaded and with bullets. How come you didn't hear about it then? Why Why weren't they the people with guns going crazy? Yeah. And, and they said, well, it's a mental illness. Yeah, I get the mental illness thing too. I get it. But did mental illness just start now? Where, what about mental illness in the 1950s? What about mental illness in the 1960s? It's a spiritual answer, isn't it? It's a spiritual issue. These demon-crazed people 
are a result of our culture. That's what wokeism produces, is demon-crazed individuals. Because look how they've been taught in schools. Look at, look at their upbringing. They have been, the kids have been told, you can have any kind of family you want. It's all equal. It's all good. To dads, to moms, whatever. It's all valid now. Versus having a mom and a dad being raised properly. Which statistically proves, hands over, that it's the best way to raise a child. But what have we told kids? You can have any, fun, any kind of family. It doesn't matter what kind of family. It takes a village to raise a family, they say. This is a product of a village raising a kid. And what does villages produce? Village idiots. <laughs> when a village raises a kid. And, and with this being said, uh, the kid's home life is dysfunctional. No dad, drug addict mother, perfect recipe for a disaster, perfect, perfect recipe for a monster to be created, right? And, and, them, and them coming out of that environment. That is a product of, of what we've taught people in this culture. It came from the sexual revolution. Okay, you can now have sex and not even get married. You know, where's the dad in the picture, right? Talk to any correctional officer that works in corrections. The majority of prisoners don't have a dad. Why is that? Why won't they ever talk about that? Oh, because that's a spiritual issue. That's why. That's why they don't talk about it. Yeah. You're not going to have revelation. The revelation is mom and dad need to be in the home raising the child. So if you don't have that and you listen to the pundits out there, you can grow up in any environment. In fact, Hillary Clinton says that the village can raise you like a wild wolf on the side of the road. And then you'll grow up just fine. No, you don't. You, you get gunmen like that. That's what you get when a village raises them. Where am I at? Okay, go for it. Sorry yeah, about that. Take a break. Thanks for taking my question. I heard you talking about um, Israel being an example, right? When they were serving God and didn't have put no idols before them, didn't marry outside and do all those things. They were blessed. And once they started serving idols, then they're destroyed, brought, brought out of their lands. Correct. And I, I know, I, I mean, I believe that, that I've been saved since I was 14 years old. I mean, I believed in God. What I lacked was relationship with God. What I lacked was knowing the God that I said that I believed in. Yeah. Correct? Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, um, I mean, I, I was, I did slip off into alcoholism during that time. So I know that deception can happen sure. even to a Christian, believe. correct? And so I guess my question is, is, is what, if, if there is an answer, what's, what's the point of deceiving a Christian? Why, why, why would we even, why would God even want us to be blinded to anything? Why wouldn't he just open up all the doors to us and, and, and so that we could see what, what the truth truly is, I guess, is my question. Good point. Uh, so here's the big idea in sanctification. You must work for it. See, Salvation, you don't work for. It's given to you, right? As a free gift, you receive it by faith. But becoming more like Christ is earned. That's why you're rewarded for it. It's a whole different ballgame. So, Dennis, the, the issue then becomes God is testing. This is where the, the, the idea of testing comes from for the believer. God is wanting to know, how bad do you want it? You got your fire insurance. 
but how bad do you want to become like my son? How bad? Because I'm going to test you to see how bad you want it. Again, testing is different than temptation, right? God tests, he doesn't tempt. But what you will see in sanctification is God will challenge you to see how bad you want it. Do you really want to grow? If you do, then what you're asking for is more light, then it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. But what do you got to do? Seek. I'm not going to lay it in your lap. Knock. What he's doing is saying, you're responsible for this. I will show you the truth behind everything. I will try. I I don't want to hold it back, but I'm not going to turn you into a spoiled brat and just serve it up to you on a silver spoon. You want it? It's in my word. Read it. That's why people don't read it. They don't, they're not seeking. They're not knocking. They don't want to know the inside track. And what do I mean by the inside track? What I mean by is spiritual truth. You can read your Bible, like I said, all, the, all, all you want. But if you don't read it for a purpose, you won't pick out the spiritual truth in the passages you're reading. And therefore, then, if you don't get the spiritual truth by the Holy Spirit revealing it to you, then you won't know how to apply it. So you just read stories for content only instead of the spiritual truth that can be applied. Because that takes work. And so the idea is, here's, it's a mining illustration. You want to go deep with God? Great. But it's going to require work. And depending on how hard you work will, be depend, will evidence how close to God you get. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about fellowship closeness, right? That if you truly want it, you better dig. And it would be like finding gold, okay? The illustration is finding gold. So what do you got to do? So say that gold is in a mine, and you got to go in the mountain. So it's going to take you some distance to travel up there to begin with. Number two, you better have the equipment to go mine that thing out. Because if you show up there with no equipment, it's going to be useless. You won't be able to get the gold out of the mine. So you have to bring the equipment with you. And then when you go into that mine, you have to start digging and digging and digging. And it's hot and you get sweaty and not a lot of comes, not, you're working hard and not a lot comes out. And he's wanting to see, will you keep digging? Will you keep digging? And then finally you hit a vein, okay? That's how it is with spiritual truth. You have to mine it. Now, what are the tools? What are the tools that you have to take to the mine? Hmm? The Bible is your tool. Fellowship, koinonia, prayer, church, willingness, all that stuff are your tools. So if people, people want that, that vein of gold, but they don't want to use the tool of the Bible. They want it. They want it just like God to communicate that directly to them. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that one. I already said it here, right? If I said it already, I'm not repeating myself. And so they won't take the tool to the mind. Or then uh, they'll take the Bible. And that's one of the tools. But the other tool that, the, that God has given us is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is to reveal truth to us as we read. So if you don't take the Holy Spirit with you when you read, you're just reading content. He is the one who is, 
has the ministry of illumination. So when you're reading, he will illuminate it and show you spiritual truth. If you're reading the Bible and you can't discern the truth, you're not accessing the Holy Spirit. That's a problem for a believer. Well, how do I access the Holy Spirit? You must yield to him. You must let him speak to you through the word and telling you this is the spiritual truth. That's the spiritual truth. That's the spiritual truth. And he's going to say that spiritual truth needs to be applied to you and you better do it. And if we and if you cooperate and allow him to show you in the text what it's saying about you, you've got it. Now that's gold. But it takes you being open and honest with the Holy Spirit saying, that's you. Yeah, that Pharisee right there, that's you. Um, Yeah, you see Judas, that's you too. You get what I'm saying? That's what he's going to do. He's going to say, and and most people say, that's not for me. My, My brother should be reading this. This is for him. That's a story for him. My sister should be reading. That's my dad, you know. Uh, No, no, you're reading it wrong. It's got to be for you. Now, if you do that and you cooperate, guess what? You're mining and you're going to get the gold. You will get it, but it takes work, doesn't it? Okay, questions, go for it. It wasn't necessarily a question, but a comment. I think what people like to adhere to is everything that is... um, what's been created instead of the creator. Give you an example. My brother's a trucker. He said one time he had an experience of a lady in a red dress actually sit next to him like a spiritual being Uh or that uh, he likes to watch uh, Montel Williams. This was way back when I guess every Wednesday he, he, uh, she always had Sylvia Brown. Sylvia Brown. Who's my guardian angel. Yeah. And he even read a book that said, I don't need Jesus. He can't be the only way. Because I read this book about all these non-believers that had outer body experience. Yeah. And they saw their relatives and stuff like that. Of course, my take is, you know, Satan can disguise himself as anything. Yeah. Unless, if you're not dead, dead, then you really don't know. And they're really marked for uh, deception there. And Absolutely. it's sad. Absolutely. And, that the, and because of that, they stay in darkness. The Sylvia Browns, you know, loved ones, I'm talking to a dead loved one or whatever, or other people had a near-death experience and saw that. The problem is they're, they're, they're not dead, and they're in the spiritual realm, and there's a counterfeit going on in the spiritual realm to convince them that, oh, this is all good and stuff. Uh, but it's actually not. It's demonic. Okay, back there. Gabriel, we got a question. Hey, Brandon. Uh, the main component that you're describing, I completely agree. You know, they don't have fathers. We depraved minds, we're spiritually lost, our country's kind of, you know, in that condition. Um, and you might dismiss this out of hand, but I was wondering maybe what percentage, there's a, uh, like in the 50s and 60s, uh, the CIA did projects called like MK Ultra, and you can look this up on Wikipedia. They spent 60, 70 million dollars, which in today's dollars would probably be like 600, 700 million dollars. And a lot of these experiments were experimental and illegal. And uh, which you probably know about these things. So they have what is called mind control. And a lot of times you can, if they have dilated pupils and you can't see very much of the color of their eyes, that's usually one of the indicators that uh, they're under mind control. And um, What percentage, and I'm not saying that's the case in this particular incident down in Texas, but um, how much do you, because they obviously, it's more evil where they want to take our guns away. They want to have reasons to take our guns away. 
but what percentage of these cases, you know, how much is this, do you think is playing into this and is even probably more diabolical and more evil than these totally evil things where people don't have fathers and we have this you know, situation going on in our country where people following the Bible is diminishing, diminishing, diminishing. Uh, what percentage? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a good percentage of people that through decades of decades of brainwashing um, are already brainwashed and following suit of what they're supposed to do. So my thing is um, there has been a level of, of, if you look at the techniques that they use um, in getting people to comply with things, like with the shutdowns and stuff like that, they used fear, didn't they? fear of health. That's a manipulative technique, by the way. And if you study, uh, you know, Marxist manipulation, communistic manipulation, they're doing it now. And it works. It really does work on the masses. But here's what we find interesting about uh, brainwashing. If, the, if, the, if the, the Christian who really knows their Bible, they won't be brainwashed. They actually can resist it because they know objective truth. And they can see through that. So they're using techniques. And that's why you're seeing so many people in the culture follow this stuff. And they're going to go right down the line eventually to worship in the Antichrist, right? But you have an advantage because you have the truth and the light. And that light keeps you from being deceived if you follow that light. All right, questions. And then we got a couple. Where am I at? Mike's. Where's Mike's? Michael, go ahead. Yeah. In response to that, I was going to say, would. Like, for instance, would you say that would be like somebody who would know that in the word it says that those who wish to save their life will lose their life. And those who will lose their life for my sake, they will save. So that's almost. And then also, however many times in the word, God says, do not be afraid. Or in other words, fear the one who can um, destroy soul and um soul and body in other words don't fear man so it's like what you're saying those types of objective truths are things that can break through some of the stuff that yeah believe it or not those kinds of truths keep you from being brainwashed because what how do they brainwash other people they brainwash them to say we'll let you keep your stuff as long as you comply. Now, as a believer, I've already been told about my stuff, right? That you ain't taking it with you, okay? And if you want to keep your stuff, you're going to lose your spiritual life. If you want your spiritual life, the abundant life, then you better lose this life. Not literally dying, but willing to give up what you have in this world. Now, you're totally right. In that sense, Michael, that would prevent you saying, boy, I'm going to do what they tell me to do because I want to keep my stinking job. It would stop you and say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't care. What, it's, it's not worth it uh, because I know the truth. They're brainwashing me. So, yeah, absolutely that. Ernie. One of the things I'm aware of or that I see is if you look around here, most of our congregation or people here in the Bible study are 40 and above. Yep. We have some youth here. <clears throat> some. Not reach, but we're not reaching the younger generation because yep. they're, they, they're not – being taught that in school it's reading the Bible. yeah Ernie, not... you're making a good point um this is why i believe this is the one of the terminal generations because the youngers are not following 
they have done everything to reach the youth and the youth is not responding. Think about your own kids. Think about your own grandkids. How are they responding? They could care less. Well, Elijah comes back uh, to help Israel. Yeah, for Israel. It's coming. Yeah. But as far as what's happening with the younger generation, uh, it's happened over successive generations. Uh, Boomers didn't do a great job with the latchkey. Latchkey does even a worse job. And then you have the millennials now raising kids, and they're doing even a worse job. It gets progressively degrading. And and so, but what, what was happening during that period of time, the stats showed you that was getting less and less spiritual. So, World War II generation. 65% of World War II generation in America, evangelical born again. Okay? In World War II era. 67%. Then you go to the baby boomer era. <clears throat> Their stats went down to 45% of born-again evangelicals. And then we watch a massive jump because that's when all the cultural revolution happened. So the baby boomers start raising kids and they do a horrible job. In fact, as far as passing on the spiritual baton, you go from 45% to 15% of latchkey are born-again evangelical. Then you have the latchkeys raising kids, and that stat drops from 15% to 4% of millennials are born-again evangelical, to where the Generation Z, it's not even a blip on the screen who are born-again evangelical. You can see the spiritual decline happening in America from the baby boomers on. And what happened with the baby boomers? What era did they go through? Cultural revolution happened, but at the same time the cultural revolution happened, the sexual revolution happened, and the Marxist revolution tagged onto it. And so you had this Marxist sexual cultural revolution happening in the 60s and that carried into the 70s and it produced latchkeys like me and then we produced millenniums and then you have gen z this this is how bad it is absolutely Uh, the whole mindset and then obviously the political aspects came into that where the political aspects saw that if you deconstruct the family then you can, you can manipulate these people and you can get their votes by giving them stuff. <clears throat> they brought in everything. On the heels of that. Yeah. So you had the sexual revolution and then by 1972 or 73, the American, Associ- American Psychological Association is hijacked and taken over by radical homosexuals that deem homosexuality not a mental illness now, but a part of a a regular life. So you had the the, the homosexual revolution following that, and you had the drug revolution that came through in the 70s. And then so then you have all this happening with latchkey. Why are we called latchkeys? There's no parent at home. No parent at home. Because the boomers were both working. Why? 
keep up with their parents. See, the World War II, this is, there's books on this, and they've read the psychology of this, okay? So what I'm telling you is not me just making this up. This comes from uh, studies on this. The boomers in polling felt that they couldn't match up to the heroism of their parents' generation that went to war, that went through the Great Depression and survived, right? And defeated the evil access, okay? So the boomers are on the heels of that. They're, they're born during the 50s. That's why they're called boomers. And, and then, then they're growing up in the 60s, okay? So how are they going to outdo their parents on the heroism? Well, they can't. So what they figured out is I'll outdo my parents, not in heroism, but I'll outdo my parents economically, this is when women entered the workforce. This is when women's liberation came up, right? Okay. So then what happened is, it's not just all the cultural revolution. Uh, we, we had a boom coming off World War II, and it, you had the ability as a one-income family to really do well on one income. But then the income changes, and they started messing with our our taxes and all kinds of stuff, making it unaffordable to be on one income. Then you have women's lib on top of that, and boom, you have the latchkey kids that's not being raised by uh, their parents because both parents are working. For what? For plenty. That's what the 80s were about. The parents had plenty. And they were outdoing their own parents from World War II. Okay, so then you have me growing up in the latchkey generation. Or you, if you're in this generation. We're raised like wolves. We, you know, <laughs> fend for yourself, man. Parents not getting home till 6 o'clock, whatever. And, you know, you're staying with babysitters or grandma or whatever it might be. And you've, you've never been with your parents all day long. Okay. That same thing happens today, but instead of going to grandma and grandpa to babysit the child, they put in daycare. That's the only difference now, okay? Because the millennials are still in that, that race too. And I get it. The economics are really bad. And, it, and living in California does require a two-income uh, thing. I get it. It's, it's very expensive to live here. I get it. But as far as spirituality... The boomers saw no need to pass this on. That's why the dramatic drop goes from 45 to 15% with my generation. They didn't see the need to pass anything spiritually on. And nor did my generation. So it kept getting secular and more secular and more secular to where it's nil with Gen Z. Okay, questions, if that makes sense. So where do we go from here then? How, so will you say, how come we're not reaching? I just went to a prophecy conference. I hardly saw a few young people. That's it. It's everyone over 40. That's it. Where are the kids? The kids don't care. They don't care. That's it. That's the answer. So all these churches are spinning a nut trying to figure out how we're going to reach you. I get, we'll put a rock and roll band. That didn't help anything. We just saw 15 years of that stuff and it hasn't helped them once. They're still messed up. They're still Laodicean. What is it? They don't want what Jesus offers. That's it. So these churches are bending over backward. We got to reach youth. And it's not working. It's not working. So they do, well, we have a big youth group over at this church or that church. And what are they doing during the youth group? Well, they're rock climbing and we're playing laser tag and all this, stuff, which is fine. But they do that every time they meet. And they never study the Bible. 
So, oh, we have a great youth group. Does that mean someone's reaching youth when they have 150 kids rock climbing every youth group? That's just nothing. So the minute they graduate, 80% of them fly the coop anyway. What is it? Because the public schools that we send our kids to are undermining Christianity. That's it. Why do we keep sending our kids to public schools when they undermine everything we do as a church? I don't get it. Why do we send our kids to universities and colleges when all those guys do is undermine everything we try to put into our kids? Why do we do that? You go to the, 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 the Christian schools like BCHS and they're pumping, going to USC, pumping to go into UCLA and Stanford and Harvard. Why? They're ungodly places of darkness. Why would you tell a kid to go there? Were you an idiot spiritually? You're an idiot because that kid will come out of raging Marxist. I don't get it. We undermine our own selves. We think our kids can't get what the disease of darkness. And they do. And nothing I can do can draw these younger generations here. I can light myself on fire. They wouldn't show up. They really could. Because you know what they would rather do? Be on their stupid phones, addicted to phones, and playing their stupid video games. That's it. They have the attention span of a gnat. That's it. Barring our own kids. I'm, not, I'm talking about the general culture. Okay, Our kids are really good. Pastor Brandon, I'm going to go back years now. You said something um, that has bothered me for years. Uh, do you remember when we were meeting back in the hotel and you were talking about the Franklin Graham seminar and how you were in charge of follow up, the follow up and how we had thousands of people there. They spent tons of money. Yeah. People came forward and then you didn't have a single person go um, into that. What are we to do? I know. Isn't that, isn't that sad? And, and, and I work follow-up for our church. Not this church, but the former church I was at. Franklin Graham, the problem with that organization, partners with Catholics. Okay? So I'm involved in follow-up. Okay? So I'm seeing what's happening. And what would happen is they had all these people so-called made a profession of faith, okay? And then they, the Franklin Graham organization, would, and Billy Graham's organization did this too, by the way. He's not impervious to this. I'm sorry, if not, he's, not, he's guilty of this as well. I mean, they would slice it up and give other churches uh, the prospects. And they gave a lot of the prospects to the Catholic Church, which I don't understand what in the world they're thinking by giving the Catholic Church any prospects whatsoever. Why don't you just send them back to hell? I don't get it. And so there was an element where they were sending them to the Catholic Church. And I, I said to our church, I said, what in the world's going on here? Why are we giving them anything? We consider the Catholic Church a false teaching church. And yet Franklin has given this stuff over to the Catholic Church. Honey. Furthermore, so I was given 32 names to follow up on. Out of all 32, did any of them respond to me reaching out to them? Zero. Zero response. I would call these people. Hey, I heard you. And some of the people, I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. What are you talking about? Who is this? You went to a Franklin Graham thing? Forget it. You're checked out. Oh, what are you on? Drugs? 
What, what did you not know what you were doing? I called 32 people, no response at all. What does that say? And some of them didn't even know what they did. It was hard ground is right. It was hard ground. How could, how could you say you had this liver quiver at the Franklin Ground thing, and then you, you have like, I don't know. I don't know what I, I, don't know what I did. I don't know. And there was, uh, so I would invite them to church and all. Did they, any of them come? No. But why? Why is that? It's an emotional thing. It wasn't a decision. It was an emotion. If I can't get one out of 32 people to follow up that said they made a profession of faith and them say, I'm not going, I don't feel like going to church, or I don't want to, then what happened here? What happened? And I'll never work that thing ever again because of that. It was useless. It was a futility of effort. We put so much time, money, effort into that thing, and it went nowhere. And then they're handing over to the Catholics. Forget that. That's crazy. I'll never do that again. And that's why I'll never let our church work for the Franklin Graham thing because of that very thing. That's crazy. We don't give them to cults. I don't understand that. So anyway, questions. We still got questions. Go ahead. Brandon, going back to what you're talking about, all these millennials on their phones, um, totally engaged with different games. Is this not an opportunity perhaps to create a biblical game? Maybe if a, someone a, has that talent, but yeah, but someone, someone from that world is going to have to do that one. And it's very sophisticated, very sophisticated. <laughs> right. That's right. Okay. Back there. Oh boy. Lots have been covered. Um, I think going back to, why these parents continue to send our kids to universities when they're learning all this Marxism. And I think it goes right back to what earlier you were saying about uh, when we worship, you know, the family, it's about the family and about, well, parents, their, their identity is my child graduated from. Perf, you XYZ got it, you nailed it. Because that's their identity. That's identity. And so what, what they have done, you nailed it, man. And good point. Instead of finding their identity in Christ, they put their identity of their kids into the world. Oh, look how many great, uh, you know, uh, trophies they have. Or look, doc, he's Dr. So-and-so, uh, Dr. Strangetooth over here, went to University of Penn. And uh, you're, you're, you nailed it. And so they have taught the kids that your identity is what you do, not who you are in Christ. You, you, Excellent point. Excellent point. Good point. Where am I going? Back there? We've got to get a mic to you. Hey. Hey. Okay, go for it, Jay. Uh, like the little lady said, good morning, everybody. But the little lady said about the video game thing, I took my son to GameStop to pick up, uh, you know, a game. We're getting a whole game or something, you know. And I said, hey, y'all got any uh, Christian video games? <laughs> and because I'm, I'm like, why ain't there any Christian video games? Like, let's see what they got. So they had, they, they said they had one. And then I'm like, all right, let's get that video game. Let's check it out, right? And then, and then uh, I'm like, well, we can't find it. I'm like, oh, wow. So there, there was only one. That's not, it wasn't there. I don't know where it was. And it's like, okay. But that's, I had that idea a long time ago. We have, 
we not we're not impacting our society at all. No, no, like, uh, you're you're right, and and the the retreat uh, has been happening with the church for a long time. They went into retreat and and protect mode rather than engage, and that's part of the problem. We didn't engage enough, and so I'm sorry. The 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 culture wars lost. Uh, we lost it. We lost it. It ain't over, but there's. Hold on. Wait, we got we got Jeff. You're right in line with me. A lot of the services that are going on, they're doing them in the arm of the flesh, and they're trying to fabricate the Holy Spirit instead yeah. of inviting the Holy Spirit. And so we have to say, Father, send your Holy Spirit. We ask that you come. Come now, Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, the, the flesh is being used big time. I was just going to say in education, I see the same thing as a physical educator trying to teach kids about health. The parents look at their kids compared to other kids that are overweight and think my kids are fine. They don't want to look at the reality of what, like you said, the truth is in faith. Well, that my kids just like that kid. So what's the problem? They don't want to look beyond the, the visual in front of them to see what's really happening. Well, that's what happens when you go blind. Parents go blind to the reality of their children. This is a big problem. They don't see the problems in them. And, uh, and then it goes ignored and, and the issues are not addressed a lot of times. And so they grow up thinking that everything's fine, but there's really some dysfunction going on and they haven't been addressed like that. Gotta take a break. Come back in five minutes.